I'm Senator James Lankford. This is The Breakdown. Glad that you've joined us again. This is the conversation that we have every single month to be able to talk about difficult issues, things that are in the news. We try to make you the smartest kid at the water cooler, uh, the smartest kid on the playground to be able to have any kind of conversation. We take the issues the news is talking about in 10 seconds or 30 seconds and try to break them down into other elements uh, to be able to help us understand the depth of that story everybody I talk to right now is talking about gas prices, diesel prices, price of natural gas, energy policy. They all want to know where are we going in the future on energy and how do we get the prices down uh, right now. So this conversation today specifically focuses in on the price of energy, the future of energy, and we have our own genuine futurist uh, on energy that's actually joining us. It's Michael Symbolist. Uh, Michael is actually, I'm going to read through some of your titles on this, Chairman of Market and Investment Strategies for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Lots of other fancy titles on this, but he gets the joy of actually researching energy, energy investment, the future of energy full-time. So while we've got lots in Oklahoma producing different types of energy full-time, Michael gets the opportunity to be able to sit in a big fancy skyscraper in New York City and to be able to research energy all across the entire country, in fact, globally as well, and to be able to help J.P. Morgan Chase determine on investment strategies on that, on where things are going long-term, but to also challenge a lot of folks to be able to look at. Michael produces a book uh, every year that's kind of an annual report on energy, not just for J.P. Morgan Chase, but also just to be able to lay out Uh, this big picture view of what's actually happening in energy in the future. So really grateful to be able to get a couple of minutes of your time. Uh, This is going to be a deep dive on some energy policy, not just oil and gas, uh, but all kinds of renewables, where are we headed? But there are some big questions right now. I'm going to focus in on a lot of the oil and gas issues uh, because that's what we're feeling right now the most are the jump in prices on this. Let me just make a couple of quick comments before I bring Michael in on this conversation. Uh, this this conversation, obviously, you can subscribe to at any time, uh, Spotify, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, just at Senator Langford to be able to track all those things and look for the breakdown. And uh, we'll send it to you every month when we actually have this conversation, or you can get a chance to be able to grab any one of those. If you want to go to my website at uh, langford.senate.gov, it's got all the details about not only our e-newsletter that we put out uh, every month, but also about this uh, podcast as well and what we continue to be able to do to be able to put the information out there. So Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being a part of the conversation on it. Really grateful for you. Uh, And the background, we had an opportunity to be able to meet when you were in a meeting in Tulsa. I got a chance to be able to pick your brain somewhat there as well. And then thought, why can't I get Michael actually on the breakdown and get a chance to go even deeper in some of these topics and have other Oklahomans join in the conversation. So I really appreciate your engagement on this and start us with just the most simple of thing. We're paying five bucks for gasoline, way more than that for diesel right now. What can be done that would actually make a difference to start reducing the price of oil and gas? Well, uh, oil and gas are different than gasoline. Right. Uh, and and the short answer is, there's not a heck of a lot that can be done on any of the three of them. Uh, as you and I were talking earlier today, um, in 2008, what brought down oil and gas and gasoline prices at the time was a global recession. Um, it's there's been just way too little investment in oil and gas infrastructure relative to oil and gas demand. And you, you, you called me a futurist, which is, you know, usually a, a very offensive term because the futurists have been terrible, absolutely terrible <laughs> issues because the vast majority of them have been projecting an extremely rapid journey to this future decarbonized world. 
And one of the, the first chart you see in the energy paper I write this year, each year shows how different the speed of adjustment is in energy compared to all these other things like smartphone adoption, changes in biotech, um, ride sharing, all of these other things that are changing so rapidly. The, I think we're still looking at something like um, wind and solar representing after all these years around 3% of global primary energy. Uh, and electric vehicles, something like 1% of the global vehicle stock. These are very, very slow transitions. Um, but the futurists, the politicians, and a bunch of other regulators have been making it so difficult for the oil and gas industry to put you know, capital into the ground that we now have had a situation where capital spending on oil and gas is down 70%, while oil and gas consumption is the same as it was five, seven years ago. So Michael, it's very interesting you be able to bring that up. And it's this constant conversation to say, if we're going to invest, we're going to quote unquote, invest in the future. Uh, we're going to invest in all these different renewables. We're going to invest in electric vehicles. We're going to invest in that kind of technology, which takes capital away from what we're using now uh, in energy and continues to be able to reduce our availability. When I talk to companies that have, pipe, that are, for instance, pipeline companies that are moving natural gas, uh, they'll say over and over again, it's harder to get capital uh, to be able to do natural gas pipelines. It's harder to be able to get permitting uh, to be able to do it. But right now, the price of natural gas that we're paying, and it's a much elevated price, is not because we're running out of natural gas. It's because there's not enough pipelines to actually put the natural gas in to use. And so it's driving up that cost. So this basic infrastructure of how do we move it uh, becomes a very big issue. So if we don't have more oil platforms, we don't have more pipelines, we don't more, have more availability, uh, we may one day have all these other technologies to be able to provide energy, but that's not helping us right now. Uh, yeah, I've never seen uh, across any industry in any country over the last you know couple hundred years of data as big a mismatch as you're seeing in the United States and Europe right now between slashing capital spending and continuing con to consume the goods that those capital expenditures are supposed to support. In a really oversimplified term, this is like taking the training wheels off your kid's bike when it's two. I mean, that's, that's the mistake that's being made here is the, the adjustment to supply is happening way faster than the adjustment to demand. Yeah. So basically, we may get to that point one day that we're doing more electrification, but that day is not today. And we don't have the access to the resources we need today to be able to cover it. I, I, again, I, I jokingly call you a futurist, by the way, because I allow any person that gets gets to be able to spend so much time to be able to look at global trends and where we're going and has to be able to tell other people, hey, when we're investing, we need to think about these things. Uh, but you've made some pretty bold comments about how little is being invested. Uh, and you've tried to put a dollar amount into uh, what, what, what it means to under invest in just our energy needs and our uh, infrastructure, right? now. Uh, walk us through that a little bit. Well, I mean, the numbers are enormous. As I meant, you know, the, the easiest way to think about it is that oil and gas consumption, whether it's in the United States or across the OECD or in the whole world, oil and gas consumption really isn't changed very much from what it was a few years ago. And our latest forecasts is that oil consumption in the United States, crude oil consumption in 10 years is going to be roughly the same as it is now. And I think because of the decommissioning of coal and nuclear, the United States may need more natural gas in 2035 than it needs today. Yeah. So 
It's it's or or you know at most if I make a bunch of assumptions, I can get to a 15% decline in natural gas consumption by 2035. What that suggests is that the oil and gas industry can, needs continued capital and support and a regulatory environment in which it can thrive. But that's not obviously the environment that the industry is being is 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 being approached with uh, by a lot of stakeholders. Yeah. Flip side of that is the uh, transition to electric vehicles. Uh, I had a conversation with someone recently about electric vehicles, electric trucks or electric buses and all this dialogue about it. Uh, And the conversation they had was, you know, we're looking, their statement is we're looking seriously at buying, investing. But then we had to stop and hesitate and think, where are we going to charge all of these how is that going to happen? So we think not only about how long we're going to need an infrastructure uh, for oil and gas, which is for a long time, which, by the way, you're not the only one even saying that. The Biden administration last year in the Energy Information Agency, they released out their projections for 2050, looking at 30 years in the future. And they looked at 30 years in the future from the Biden administration and said, the world will use more coal, more oil and more gas in 2050 than what we're doing now. Now, we'll also, they predict, use a lot more renewables as well, but we're going to need more power, and that's still going to include oil, gas, and coal in that mix for a while. And so the administration also is saying the same thing you are. They're just saying it quietly. But this transition to electrification, while that may occur at some points in the future, there's a lot of infrastructure pieces that are missing on that as well. Right. So what kind of infrastructure do you need? Well, first of all, you need massive charging infrastructure. We're going to need a lot more research because there's emerging evidence that level two and level three charging degrades battery life. So I don't think we're deep enough into this transition yet to understand what happens to these extremely expensive batteries if you charge them more quickly instead of charging them overnight. Um, And then we're going to have to enhance the grid, right? I I mean, if we're talking about a 10 or 15 percent increase in electrification demand in the United States, we're going to have to um, reinforce the grids on a local basis to be able to handle all of that increased consumption, a lot of which will be taking place at the same time of the day. Um, and to look, let's be clear, despite a, a 90% decline in the, in the cost of lithium-ion batteries, the average electric car still uh, costs more than the equivalent internal combustion engine car. Um, and, you know, there's a question of how, how big the subsidies might have to be to close that gap. But right now, the, the, the average electric vehicle is still more expensive. One of the reasons why EV sales in the United States were 3% of all vehicles last year. Well, and remember, I think, yeah, I think they're 2%, 2 overall, aren't they? They're 2% of all, all vehicles on the road in the United States are electric vehicles. Yeah. Well, remember, there's two variables. One is percentage of sales. The other one's the percentage of the fleet. So even when we're running at 10 15 20% of annual sales, the, the percentage change in the fleet is going to happen more slowly. When I, you know, I'm older than you. And when I was a kid, you know, the, the average life of a car on the road was only maybe eight or nine years. That number is now 14, 15, 16 years. So even people that are interested in maybe buying an electric vehicle are going to wait until the useful life of the existing vehicle they own is exhausted. So this, this transition is going to take a long time. And, um, and I'd like to see more people acknowledge that because that will change the dialogue completely around the lack of refinery investment, which is the reason why current gasoline prices are as high as they are. Yeah, my, my understanding is the last refinery that was built in the United States was, uh, was a major refinery. It was 1977. 
Right. And, and now capacity has increased since then, but because of expansions at existing refineries rather than new ones. And then since the, since since the beginning of 2020, for the really the first time on record over the last 30, 40 years, refinery capacity has been shrinking for all the obvious reasons, cost, regulatory issues, permitting issues, NIMBY issues. And so, you know, we the United States will probably lose its rank as the country with the with the largest amount of refining capacity within a few years because of this. Which means we're actually producing oil, but we've got to literally ship our oil to other countries to be refined into gasoline and then be brought back to us because we that, won't have the refining capacity to be able to handle it. That that's that's where we will be headed. Um, there's a projection that Lyondell is going to be shutting one of the largest refineries in the country, in, in I think in Louisiana next year. Um, the, the the trend is not favorable here with respect to gasoline independence. Yeah. So that, that that's a very big issue, because as a country, we know what it means to be energy dependent and what it means to be energy independent, and then energy dominant, where we can actually have our energy, then sell it where we want to, use it how we want to. But the the world's very interconnected on energy issues. But in this in this case, it becomes a real risk for us uh, if we're producing oil, but we can't produce gasoline. We've got to ship it to other countries to then be shipped back to us to be able to actually get gasoline or for lithium. Uh, if we can't get access actually to the lithium itself, uh, if we're having to get the lithium produced from China or produced from other countries to be able to bring to us, we suddenly have electric vehicles, uh, but we can't actually produce, quote unquote, the energy source for those as well. So talk us through a little bit just about what that means as far as access to getting that and what it means to be energy independent or dependent. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I, to refer to my, I remember as a kid my in the early 70s, all politicians on, on both parties talked about was energy independence. And uh, our maximum energy dependence hit as a percentage of GDP or however you want to look at it in around 2006. That's when our energy deficits were at their largest levels. Um, and it was right before the fracking boom kicked in. We've now reached energy independence for the first time in 50 years, which is we're, we're now a negligible importer of crude oil. We're a net exporter of oil and refined products combined, and we're net exporters of both coal and natural gas, not by large amounts, but by a little bit. And, you know, there's that phrase, you know, there by the grace of God go I, we could be Europe, right? Yeah. Europe, didn't, Europe has not paid attention to the fact that they've been shutting their domestic production of oil and gas over the last decade and become more and more reliant on Russia, which has been an absolute disaster for them. So as, as difficult as it is to see electricity prices going up and natural gas prices going up, they've been five to 10 times higher in Europe this year because they took their eyes off the importance of energy independence. And so, uh, you know, I. Anybody that's not paying attention to the consequences of losing energy independence this year, given what's going on in Europe, is really not paying attention at all. And I'd like to hear more people who, who talk about and study the kind of green transition to acknowledge the fact that if we look at lithium ion batteries, solar panels, wind turbines, rare earth elements, China has a 60 to 80 or 90 percent market share in all of those things. So. While the renewable transition is helpful from a climate perspective, it definitely reintroduces all sorts of geopolitical and supply chain risks that have to be thought through very carefully as well. 
But it's not that we don't have lithium here in the United States or rare earth minerals here in the United States or manufacturing here in the United States. We have those things also here. It's not it when we talk about rare earth minerals doesn't mean they're they're only one place on earth. There are several places. In fact, uh, in in our state, there's a new production facility that just announced that they're opening up will be the first production facility for some of the rare earths to do magnets. Uh, that'll happen in the United States that they're planning to be able to open up in my state of Oklahoma. So some of this is here. It's uh, just extremely difficult to be able to mine it. What what do you see as the big issues, how we can move from not being dependent on China for lithium and other rare earths and trying to be able to move that back to the United States? Well, I mean, you need you you, you need kind of a change to the to the regulatory approach Um you know, we we do a lot of business with with business owners, small business owners, medium sized business owners, and th- they tell us that in some states, you walk in and you meet with some local regulators and politicians, and the line of the line of discussion is, what can we do to help you? What can we do to make you more successful so you can grow your business and hire more people and thrive here? And in other places, the Northeast, for example, <laughs> they start out with a list of all the things you can't do or else you're going to get in trouble. And, you know, it's, it's really a mindset of whether or not you want to embrace and encourage these kind of activities or not. And then that percolates through the entire regulatory and financing and support systems for these industries, including capital provisions from banks. Um, there's a battle going on inside every bank right now, including J.P. Morgan, as to what industries we can provide capital to, on what basis should we be providing that capital? And it's no longer just a discussion of whether or not they're going to get a good return on their investment. Um, there's a lot of other things interfering with those decisions right now. And and my fear is you're getting a lot of suboptimal decisions that are getting made. I don't think the CEOs of banks are smart enough to be deriving um, economic policy. They shouldn't be deciding which industries get capital or not. I don't think that they should be doing that. I think the demand and the marketplace should be making those decisions instead. Yeah. You you had a great story uh, that I heard you say uh, just about your five-year-old and trying to learn a little bit about energy and what you learned from your, uh, your five-year-old from taking him out of New York City and uh, how you apply that to energy policy. And I, I think it's a great illustration of people that, that, that in some ways think energy comes from the wall uh, and lose track of what that really means. Walk me through that. Hopefully I've reminded you of that story. Yeah, well, you know, my uh, when you grow up in New York, your kids don't really experience the world. And so my my son had never seen a chicken other than wrapped in plastic and in the supermarket and chicken nuggets. So we we took him to to rural Pennsylvania where he saw his first chicken and he was terrified because he was he didn't know what this thing was. And eventually he got used to chickens and, and other kinds of wildlife and eventually worked a couple of summers on the farm and on a farm in, in upstate New York, which helped out a lot. Um, the, the point is that a lot of our clients um, and a lot of other people we interact with really have shockingly low knowledge about how the energy ecosystem works. And that's one of the reasons I write the energy paper each year. And if I could just take a couple of minutes on one of the most important things that people need to understand, there's all this discussion about wind and solar and wind and solar and hydro and storage. Electricity accounts for something like 20% of our overall energy consumption. So you can you could you could try to turn the entire grid green, and all you're doing is a, is is dealing with 20% of primary energy consumption. The rest of it 
you know, used for home heating and for industrial companies to make bricks, plastic, cement, steel, rubber, ammonia, fertilizer. That's where the rest of the energy consumption is happening. So there's a, there's a real misunderstanding and an overestimation of what happens when you add wind and solar, because it's really only affecting electricity and not all of the other energy uses. Right. And the second thing that's also really important to understand is you can add a lot of wind and you can add a lot of solar, but unless you add storage and transmission, you're not really going to make the energy ecosystem work. And I have yet to see a properly adjusted cost estimate for wind and solar power that takes the, the, tra the incremental transmission and storage costs into account when, you, when somebody says, well, how much does it cost to generate a megawatt hour of wind or solar power? Hmm. So look, look into the future with us. Uh, as we add more renewables, as we uh, continue to be able to work towards more electrification, uh, which I understand what you're saying is, is a long uh, tail on this, is that five years? Is that 10 years? Is that 30 years? Is that 50 years? Uh, uh, as far as how long we'll be using fossil fuels and when you'll see a more of a tipping point of transition? You know, as I mentioned, it's, it's really hard to, to, to get the fossil fuel numbers down meaningfully um, in short timeframes. And almost every plan I've seen has so many blatant holes in it and, 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 and fallacies about human nature, and of which I'll get to one in a minute. Um, uh, you know, again, our, our crude oil consumption forecast um, in 2030 is not that 20 is not that different from today. And again, natural gas in particular in 2035, even if you really ramp up wind and solar installations, 10% maximum 15% below what it is today. So we're going to be needing these fuels for a really long time. And 2022 and 2026 and 2028 are very premature points in time to to start to try to unplug the regulatory and financial support for those industries. Because look, look what's happening now. The, the, there's a refinery for sale in Houston. Nobody wants to buy it. There's no bid. I mean, usually there's a bid at some price for almost anything as a financial asset that has cash flow. There's no bid for this thing because because the perception is there are there are so many people that want this refining industry to be out of business within 10 years. Who's going to spend the billions of dollars purchasing it and maintaining it and upgrading it, right? Nuclear is suffering from some of the same issues right now. Yeah, it's interesting when I talk to people, that, for instance, in Canada, um, uh, economy that in some ways is also growing and thriving, and uh, they're very careful on how they do their production of energy. Uh, when they're actually putting infrastructure in, uh, let's say mining, for instance, it takes about five years for them to put a mine in uh, to be able to go after lithium, to go after whatever products that they need to be able to get. It takes us 15 years to be able to do that same thing based on the permitting. Uh, they're actually, of course, they didn't do the Keystone Pipeline because that was blocked into uh, coming into the United States across the border by the Biden administration. But they're going to take a pipeline, take that exact same oil, and they're going to push it to their West Coast, sell it to China, and then also put it on ships and literally just ship it around to California and to the West Coast to be able to actually do refining there rather than bringing it in by pipeline, which is not as efficient 
but they're actually working through the infrastructure things in Canada that we're struggling with here in the United States because there's just a common knowledge. In Europe, we're seeing them actually move back towards some of the fossil fuel items, uh, saying we set some unrealistic goals and there's some shifting that's happened. And I'm sure you saw recently in a Wall Street Journal uh, editorial piece, an article that came out as well, uh, dealing with some of the third world countries uh, that are very, very frustrated because there's some expectation that the third world is going to skip fossil fuels and they're going to go straight to solar and to wind. Uh, but there's a lot of frustration for them to say the modern economies that are around the world are still running on fossil fuels and they're trying to transition and the other third world uh, economies are not able to catch up to that. Yeah, particularly, by the way, particularly since the United States and Europe have outsourced the production of a lot of energy intensive materials to these countries. It, it's it's kind of the height of absurdity to, to say, well, now that we're relying on them for all sorts of energy intensive materials that require lots of industrial production, that, that they should be producing those goods with much more expensive and inefficient wind and solar and hydropower rather than using natural gas uh, and coal and oil, which is what the United States used for the last hundred years. Um, on, on the topic of infrastructure, Jamie, our chairman, asked me to put something together for him. Um, we, the United States now incurs much higher costs per mile of highway or per, higher, per mile of rail than any other country in the OECD. Um, the, you remember the Los Angeles and, and Long Beach ports, which had all those container ships stacked up? Out of 350 ports in the world evaluated by the World Bank, those ports ranked about 330 in terms of productivity and cost. And it has to do with, in part, some of the issues around automation, right? Those port, the, the rest of the ports in the world are automated. A lot of the California ports are not automated. And there's a lot of political battles over how to get that automation done. And um, right, you know, right now, I think what the United States needs more than anything else is, is a productivity shock that makes it easier for projects to get built and for, um, and for companies to be able to execute the vision they have on things. That's what Eisenhower, Eisenhower in the beginning of the 1950s inherited massive amounts of World War II debt. By the end of the decade, the debt had fallen in half relative to the size of the economy. He didn't do that through taxes. He didn't do that by slashing spending. Eisenhower got it done by streamlining the way business ran. Um, there were changes to the tax code that made, you know, that the, the S corporation taxes took away double taxation of certain businesses. And everything that was done was designed to get the economy growing again. And that's how the economy grew and the debt fell in half. I mean, that's what we need desperately over the next decade. Yeah. And that includes, by the way, the innovation. We've talked a little bit about uh, climate issues and trying to be able to produce energy cleaner. Uh, it's not just a matter of producing energy, uh, but it's we, we can do it better and we can continue to be able to produce it cleaner and cleaner and cleaner over the years ahead. Uh, but it's also the simple acknowledgement, we are going to need large amounts of energy. Uh, we're not an economy that just runs on water and air. We actually run on energy, and that energy has to be able to come from somewhere. Uh, you have a fascinating map, by the way. I want to be able to bring this up and let people get a chance to be able to see it. So explain this map to me, because uh, as as an Oklahoma, and Oklahoma looks normal. Texas looks a little large there in this. But if I look at the Northeast, that that blue state looks like Pennsylvania there. Holy cow, Pennsylvania is much larger than all of the Northeast. What am I looking at on this map? Right. So, yeah, yeah. Um... And, and I'll be publishing it so people can, if, if they, they'll be able to find their way to this by looking at the stuff we publish. It's all public. Um, 
I took a map of the United States and I resized all the states according to the amount of food, energy, and mining activity in those states. And I, I think that there's never been a more important time to understand the contributions that these states are making. You, you can't have large urban centers which control something like 85% of the US population. We, you can't have large urban centers surviving without massive amounts of, of food, energy, and mining that come from the larger states in this map. And there's a lot of implications of, of, of this kind of map, including what kind of political power should vest in the places that are producing these goods, which are central to basic survival and national security. And, and you know, unfortunately, it's taken a both a, a war and a currency and energy crisis in Europe to wake people up to the importance of a lot of these basic necessities. Where do we where do we get them from, and how do we how do we ensure future supply? And you know, the Biden administration is finding its way, and it's, boy, is it difficult for them because the starting point from where they started on all these topics is very different from where they're now ending up, and the idea that the administration. Is, is, is sending envoys to, to Saudi Arabia and potentially Iran and Venezuela to, to, to ask for more oil production uh, is wild. Yeah, it is. It's, it's painful, and you are correct. Where the Biden administration began on this was actually during the campaign itself uh, when President uh, Biden at that point, camp, uh, candidate Biden, uh, walked over to somebody during a town hall meeting and said, look me in the eyes, look me in the eyes. I guarantee you I will end fossil fuels. I guarantee you. And then the then as president then releases an energy report to say actually in 30 years we're going to need more oil, gas, coal uh for the world in the days ahead and we've got to figure out what we're going to actually do on that. So there seems to be a real conflict even among the administration uh where some parts of the administration are saying get rid of all of it and other parts are saying if we get rid of all of it, we're going to collapse not only our economy, but the world economy. And we're going to have this rising inflation that we're dealing with right now. Here's an interesting litmus test that I, I engage in when I talk to a lot of you know, Green New Deal and, and, and people that believe in a potential for a very rapid transition. So Massachusetts is a state that's running out of power. They need more power generation and they're going to have to start rationing power to industrial customers unless they get more generation. A decade ago, they got offered incredibly clean and cheap hydropower at five cents a kilowatt hour. I mean, that's extremely cheap for people that understand electricity. Um, but the Canadians, Hydro-Quebec said, we're going to leave it at the border. You come get it at the Canadian border. And it's yours at five cents a kilowatt hour. For the last 10 years, Massachusetts has tried and failed twice to get a project going. Uh, to build a high voltage direct current line to bring that power first through Maine, first through New Hampshire, then through Maine, and both times it got blocked. And so now Massachusetts, those projects are now completely dead. Tens of millions of dollars were lost on them in terms of development. And now Massachusetts is thinking about some offshore wind projects. And offshore wind is extremely expensive for all the obvious reasons. And so if the most progressive part of the entire United States is unable to, to implement eminent domain uh, on, on, on transmission lines that would have been buried 85% underground to allow Massachusetts to switch from natural gas to hydropower. If that can't happen in the progressive enclave of the Northeast, then a lot of people's projections about the speed of this transition are way too rapid. Yeah.
They are. In 2007, uh, they, a, a transmission line started in the western part of the United States to take wind power for the northern part, northwest part of the United States down to the southwest. Uh, that trans -west, uh, transmission line started its permitting process in 2007. They've not built a single tower yet because they don't have the permits to be able to get it actually done and complete. And so yeah. we, we, there are a lot of projects that are out there that everyone says, if only... But the problem is we got to solve our permitting issues. We've got to solve uh, our ability to be able to have a variety of different energy sources uh, to be able to supplement each other, to be able to make sure that we stay consistent. And we've got to have the current infrastructure to be able to keep going what we're using now. Yeah, I mean, at some point, the Senate in aggregate is going to have to tackle the following issue. We wouldn't have the interstate highway system, natural gas pipelines, national parks, the fiber optic networks, we wouldn't have those things if federal eminent domain weren't adopted at some point with national consensus around it over the last hundred years. And, you know, the, the right now that federal eminent domain does not exist for renewable related transition projects. If the country is really serious about this, it, they'll find their way there. If not, then this thing is going to be happening at a very, very, very slow pace. Well, I'm going to throw one more fun thing at you, and then I want to be able to close out because we had a great conversation. I'm taking a bunch of your time. You have a really funny uh, word for people that talk all the time about dead birds at wind farms. And uh, you have a nice bit of my kind of dry humor and sarcasm in it. Uh, this has been a common thing. In, in Oklahoma, as you know, we have a very diverse energy portfolio. We have lots of wind power. We have lots of oil and gas. Uh, we have a little bit of coal. Uh, we have hydro. Uh, we have solar. So we have, we have a, a pretty diverse energy portfolio. But I hear this comment all the time about uh, dead birds in wind tower. And there are some dead birds in wind tower. But you've also brought up some new facts and information on this. So I want to bring that out real quick to close that just in a conversation about energy. Well, look, I mean, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not I'm blanking on the exact phrase that I used, but, um, you know, energy, all energy has costs and benefits, right? There's there's and, and that's you know, the maturation of any society is to understand that there's costs and benefits to any kind of energy. Nothing is risk free. Nothing is cost free. Nothing is health free. And everything is a question of what prices you're willing to pay and not pay in order to have cheap, abundant energy and not have national security issues get in the yeah. way. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, it, yes, there are, there are birds that are killed by wind turbines. Uh, they are vastly outnumbered by birds that happen to get killed by cats and, and glass buildings. And, and here's, here's a good way that we can end this discussion because it shows the potential for progress and integration with other businesses. There have been some tests done where artificial intelligence cameras have been, have been erected on some of these wind turbines and slow them down when they see certain rare species approaching. And stuff like that has, has helped bring down bird fatalities enormously. Painting, some of the, painting every other wind turbine a different color has done the same thing. So we're in the early stages of some of these experiments. Um, but again, it's, it's a sign of how long this journey is going to be. And if there's a single message that I think that I, Jamie and I are in agreement on, it's that you know, we, we are going to try as hard as we can to marry our job as financing agents um, to finance the pace of capital 
at the same pace as the pace of change. And I think if there's if, if there's any responsibility that we have to the country, it's to make sure that those two things don't get too far out of whack. Yeah. Be able to keep the balance of capital, be keep the balance of energy. And when we get out of balance on that, we see all the price changes and everything else uh, that's happening currently in this day. So we, it's going to take us a while to be able to catch up and to be able to maintain what we need to just run infrastructure right now for our energy and uh, to also work towards an energy future, but to also maintain an energy present as well. That's actually going to continue to be a work. Michael, thanks for letting us pick your brain. I really appreciate you joining us in this. Uh, the folks that are interested in, in uh, subscribing to this kind of conversation, we have it on different topics uh, once a month of a wide variety of both domestic and foreign issues uh, to be able to dig a little bit deeper on this. Uh, you can always uh, follow this and subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. You can go to my website, langford.senate.gov, and uh, that'll get more information there about our e-newsletter that we send out once a month, also uh, about this podcast and other things that are going on in the Senate. Be able to keep you up on. Michael, if people want to do more research into your research and what you've actually put out there, what'd be the best way for people to be able to go see all this information that you put out publicly? They can look me up on LinkedIn and uh, you can find your way to the different pieces I've written. And um, the energy piece was published uh, this year in May. It's oh, great. Michael, thanks again. And uh, we'll try to put some links out uh, links out so people can go directly to some of those resources because they're great resources uh, for anyone who's interested in energy of any level uh, to be able to look at and say, where are we headed? What are we doing? What's a realistic transition timeline? And how do we actually get there? It's a very good dose of realism uh, to be able to look at and to be able to see the hard numbers on it. So thanks for doing that kind of research. We look forward to the next report next year uh, to continue uh, to continue to get that kind of information and uh, to see the transitions that are ahead. So, Michael, thanks again uh, for your work. Thanks for joining us here on The Breakdown.